episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters, longtime supporters like Greg and Pearl Morgan, Amy Swan, Greg Bench, Joe Robertson, and Dan George, and new patrons like Kate Lamb, Andred, and Carl Davis are the people who make this podcast possible. Stick around for an extended shout out at the end. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host. Jackson, the son, and thanks to today's film, I no longer have to wonder what a mutant love child between Taxi Driver and the TV show Psych would look like. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well... I thought you were gonna. I thought for sure you were gonna say gazebo. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Yeah. Well, we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies that uh, we cover, and today it's just me and you, buddy. It's uh, no guests, but we are covering. Uh, I guess this has become kind of a theme since our last episode was mm-hmm. Christine with Greg Bench. And now we have The Dead Zone, also from 1983, also celebrating its 40th anniversary. And so, The Dead Zone. Now, this was a movie that, I, well, let me just first read the IMDb synopsis because it's so short. Right. <laughs> it's literally one line. And then we'll jump into it. A man awakens from a coma to discover he has psychic ability. Yep. That's it. (laughs) That is... Perfect synopsis. That is the synopsis. One of the shortest synopsis I have ever, ever seen. So, Mm -hmm. um, The Dead Zone from 1983. Now, there's lots going on here, but we're going to keep this fairly short. But when did you first see The Dead Zone? I first watched, this was the second watch for me this time around. Um, I think I first watched this about two years ago. Um, And then after watching the movie, I started but never finished the book. I have the book in front of me, uh, but I I never finished it. So I don't know how the ending stacks up in comparison to to the film. But like you were saying earlier, I remember it being fairly um, faithful because this is one of the few Stephen King books that you really can adapt safely. It feels like one of the few that you don't need to dedicate a mini series to although uh, as we might get into later mm. uh, they tried with anthony michael hall to do a the dead zone uh tv show which i haven't watched i don't even know if you knew that that existed i know it existed i have yeah. seen parts of episodes i um didn't care for it yeah i think that's um, the general consensus and uh partly is that because once Anthony Michael Hall kind of outgrew being a child and like weird science and so mm-hmm. forth, um, I, I didn't know him. Ne- I've never talked to him, but I've seen him at functions when I lived in LA. And mm-hmm. when he got all grodied up, he got a little too grodied up for his pants. Let's just say that he's, <laughs> uh, I didn't really care for him. And so, right. um, you know, but so I, I, I checked it out a little bit. I read the book in the eighties, I watched this on home video probably in 84, 85, somewhere around there. Read the book at that time, like 84, 85, up through the end of the 80s and end of the 90s. I I read everything Stephen King produced. I was going back, reading everything I'd missed and reading everything that came out. And and so I I read the book, but it was I read the book probably right after I watched the movie in like 85, 86. And then I didn't see the movie again for a long time. And um, it and I remember thinking that the movie was good, but didn't blow my skirt up. 
And so mm-hmm. then I rewatched it when I was going through the horror movies of 1983 for my letterbox lists. And then I had a different view of it. And I've watched it a couple of times since. One of the reasons is one of my favorite people to listen to is Joe Dante. Mm-hmm. Uh, great director Joe Dante has a co-host a podcast called The Movies That Made Me. Sometimes the podcast is a little pretentious, but Joe Dante is a walking encyclopedia and his co-host is the guy who wrote the screenplay for David Cronenberg's History of Violence mm-hmm. and was nominated for an Oscar for it. And he let it slip that he, Joe Dante, thought The Dead Zone is David Cronenberg's best film. Hmm. And of course, his co-host Josh, I think it's Josh Olson, got offended and said, wait a minute, I wrote a David Cronenberg film and it wasn't yeah. The Dead Zone. <laughs> and Joe Dante quickly said, well, that's his second best film. Right, right. He could have <laughs> saved it by saying it's his best horror film. Yeah, maybe, but... Um, but, uh, but what, no, he, I don't even know. Would you call this a horror film? It's kind of a horror film in the way that Silence of the Lambs is a horror film. I think it is, especially because we'll get into it when we, you know, when we break down the plot. But it's basically, basically like a couple of vignettes, right? Mm-hmm. So we get Christopher Walken. He and Brooke Adams are engaged or talking about being engaged. They're both teachers, and he ends up in a car wreck. And ends up in a coma for five years, I believe. Yeah. Okay. And so he wakes up. She's married someone, had a kid. And now he has the psychic ability where basically if he touches somebody, and I think it's always somebody, right? Because he tries to grab a pack of cigarettes from a serial killer, but that didn't work. Mm-hmm. He gets he gets little traces of things if he can touch something that they've touched, but the body is is the main the main vessel. Right. I think if he, he shakes their Even hand, a dead or body. Grabs their, yeah, yeah. And so and he gets kind of either flashbacks or or present situations or so forth. And so we get that vignette, and you know he lets a nurse know that her little girl is caught in a house fire. The girl is fine. Then we move on. He moves in with his parents. He doesn't have a job anymore. He's living with his, you know, his religious mother and and father. He eventually agrees to help with the hunt for a serial killer. That's where I think it gets the horror comes in. And it is interesting. Yeah. Like you said, it it does have that kind of vignette feel where Mm -hmm. uh, it it has all these different things that kind of happen to Johnny, but none of them are really uh, the same narrative. It's kind of strange the way that it just kind of things weave in and out of Johnny's life. Right. But um, yeah, that's, that is interesting. It is like a horror film in that vignette. And then it's like a taxi driver style thriller and the, and the, the third act and the first act, it's more like a medical mystery thing, like an awakenings type of thing. Um, So it is a very strange and kind of disjointed film, but I think that's one of the reasons I like it so much. And it really does distinguish itself both from, Cronenberg's filmography and from King's bibliography because it has a much more kind of grounded feel to it. Um, it it's almost suggested that maybe this psychic thing is like some kind of medical, uh, something that Joe Rogan would talk about, basically. Some kind of, well, the brain does these crazy things, you know? Yes, I, was, I was just talking about Joe Rogan yesterday and, and today, actually from from the pulpit because he interviewed Stephen Meyer, the Christian um, philosopher of science this week. But uh, I listened to all three hours of that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that, I mean, we can just go ahead and jump into it. We are a spoiler podcast. Let's, 
you know, we get through the first part where where Johnny, played by Christopher Walken, who we'll talk about here in a minute, you know, he wakes up and he discovers almost as almost like a compulsion to grab people's hands sometimes, right? Because mm-hmm. he does that with the nurse and his doctor. Yeah. And learns that the little girls in a fire learns about the doctor that he survived the Holocaust and also um, his mother did too. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, from, from that point to that point, it's almost a little science fiction-y. Sure. More than yeah. a fantasy, more than it is a horror movie. But then we get to the Castle Rock Killer. Yeah. And then things get pretty horrific because not only do we learn about the Castle Rock Killer and we've got the mystery. I know it's kind of a police procedural, but it's got the great Tom Skerritt as the sheriff, right? Oh, yeah. And what a mustache, by the way. Absolutely always what a mustache. But uh, And so then we go from that to the, we find out that the serial killer kills with like these surgical or, or barber style scissors mm-hmm. and is raping and killing women. And we see the beginning of one in the gazebo. And, and then, then we get him tracked down. And we learn that his mother played by the great Colleen Dewhurst, the, the uh, often estranged wife of George C. Scott, that, you know, the mother knew about it. Yeah. Was covering up the fact that spoiler alert, uh, the deputy, Tom Skerritt's deputy is the serial killer. Mm-hmm. And his suicide is, shall we say, inventive. It is very inventive. It's the most, maybe the most Stephen King thing I can think of. Because, uh, yeah, he doesn't just, he doesn't just shoot himself. No, he's, uh, and I remember I, it had been a while since I had watched it and we were talking about covering this one. And I was like, you know, I, I feel like, um, I like the movie, but as far as a Cronenberg uh, film goes, and even as far as the King adaptation goes, it feels kind of tame. And you were like, well, do you remember the bathroom scene? I was like, what? And you're like, you remember the bathroom scene? And I was like, oh, maybe. And you're like, oh, well, just wait for the bathroom scene. And you yeah. warned me, uh, but I was not ready. It was, it's, it's something brutal. It definitely gives me, that whole segment gives me Exorcist 3 vibes for some reason. It has yes. that, that sort of feeling to it. With the I, scissors I, and with the the the, the serial killer, that kind of gives me uh, Exorcist three vibes, which makes me you know wonder what what had happened, what would have happened if Johnny was in the Exorcist three helping uh, George C. Scott with the <laughs> the Gemini killer, what what would have happened there? But um, yeah, it's it's just a really interesting tonal shift, act to act. But I kind of like it; it keeps things moving, and we have that anchor of Johnny throughout those tonal shifts, so it doesn't feel like whiplash. It's almost like Stephen King was writing a series of short stories about Johnny, don't you think? Yeah, it definitely feels like it feels like Johnny is Sherlock Holmes, and these are a bunch of different Sherlock Holmes uh, mysteries. And you know how Sherlock Holmes would have a regular kind of murder mystery, and then one would be kind of gothic and spooky, like the Hounds of the Basker Baskerville, like, yeah. that kind of thing. It, it feels like that. Like Stephen King had a bunch of different ideas for what a psychic detec- detective would do. And that somewhere at the end of the series, he would die in this way. And uh, then he just decided, I'm just, I'm not going to have time for that. I'm so coked up right now. I'm just going to make it one book. Uh, and I'm sure he doesn't remember writing this either, uh, but I'm just going to make it one book. <laughs> probably not a- at that time. No, he probably doesn't remember. He probably doesn't remember the premiere of this movie. Right, because this is prime Coke era. This is like Cujo, yeah. uh, Christine, Dead Zone, all of that whole period is just a oh, it just was a, a spot it for was him. a according to him, it was a pack of cigarettes, a six pack of beer, cocaine, and marijuana, 
every day. Yeah, which, I mean, incidentally did not affect his uh, creative output. If anything, it, it might have <laughs> added to it, kept him, kept him up in those long hours, which makes me wonder what he's doing now. I wouldn't recommend it. but and I uh... wouldn't either, no, but it makes me wonder what he's doing now because he still releases a book every every two minutes. So yeah, maybe he's still keeping to that routine. Yeah, but we get, so we get the serial killer and we can talk about this, but then we get to, on the overall plot, then there's the whole thing where he's tutoring the student of a wealthy man played by Herb is it Zerbe or something like that. I can't remember. He's Anthony yeah. Zerbe. He's been in a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and usually plays the villain, but here he's just a rich guy who wants a tutor for his kid. And, and he predicts that, that his kid will drown if the, if they go to this, you know, hockey practice, it turns out the kid doesn't want to go because he trusts Johnny, but two other kids do drown. And so he's proven the rich guy's proven to be wrong. Then we get to the political narrative, which is kind of woven in through, you know, the second and third act, right? With Martin Sheen as, as Greg Stilson running for Senate. Right. It is still a little incidental that it's just like he only meets this candidate because he's tutoring this kid, uh, and which is not really, I guess he is a tutor, but he, um, it's, it's strange. So he's a psychic detective, uh, but also he's a tutor and that's what this guy comes to him for and then doesn't trust his psychic detective skills. It's a very strange kind of way to tie these two things in. But I guess also Sarah is uh, married to, I guess, a campaign manager of Martin Sheen. Well, so at it, least a volunteer or something. Yeah, he's somebody right. close oh, to the campaign. Yeah. Right, because Martin Sheen doesn't even know his name at the, the scene at the end. Uh, right. Sarah's like, oh, you remember my husband, blah, blah, blah. So he's not right. that directly tied to the That's the right. Campaign. He says, oh, this is your baby, which foreshadows something that, <laughs> right. um, you know, and, and bring the, bring, come upstage, con stage with me, you know. And so, yeah, what we get is that the last half, Martin Sheen is playing what now online people are saying Stephen King predicted Donald Trump. But in yeah, reality, too. in reality, he's more like a Ross Perot type because mm. he's, they keep making a big deal that he's a third party candidate and all this other kind of stuff. And he seems some, for some reason, the one, one knock I have on this movie, Martin Sheen seems at times to lapse into like a Southern accent when he's supposed to be in Maine. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they filmed in, in Toronto. So the, the Southern accent should come in nowhere and nowhere. Right? It's weird. It, it's kind of weird that he lapses into that sometimes. I think I'm he's not... just thinking I'm a conservative candidate. That means I should have a Southern accent, I guess. I, uh, I guess. But I mean, Martin Sheen's from Dayton, Ohio. It's not like he's not unfamiliar right. with, you know, but but it's, you know, and I will give Martin Sheen this. He is a Reds fan. So mm -hmm. we, we have that there you in go. common. That's all um, that matters. <clears throat> that's all that matters. But yeah, so Martin Sheen's playing this guy running for Senate, Greg Stilson, and Christopher Walken gets a visionary vibe after shaking his hand that he will one day become president and start World War III. <laughs> and then absolutely bonkers. I mean, that is like straight out of like 12 Monkeys or something. That is a crazy flash forward. Wakes up from a dream and says he yeah. had a vision and this is his destiny to launch nuclear missiles at the Soviet <laughs> yes. Union. One of my favorite quotes, General, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. His, mm. his, his performance is electric in this movie. Say what you will about his draw, uh, kind of drifting in and out, but his performance i mean especially that scene where he's blackmailing the reporter that scene is electric just a great performance from from martin sheen there it is but it's you know which brings me to i'll finish off that we christopher walken has the great conversation with his doctor played by herbert Lom, 
mm-hmm. um, about would you kill Hitler? If you go back in time, would you kill Hitler? Yeah. You know, and Herbert Lom's character has that great line where I'm a doctor. I'm I'm committed to saving life, preserving life. I love people. So, of course, I'd have to kill the SOB. Yeah, that's a great line. Um, and so Christopher Walken determines in order to basically that one, you, he pretty much wants to die at this point because he's miserable. Right. He's he's without his love. This gift is wearing his body down. He doesn't feel good. He's getting migraines like four or five times a day. And so he decides to save the world and end his own life by assassinating Martin Sheen's character. But things go a little out of plan. I mean, he begins by dropping bullets. It's it's clear that this teacher is not an avid hunter. No. Um, he has no idea what he's doing. And he misses his shot, uh, despite the fact that, with all due respect, and I, I love Martin Sheen as an actor, but as a human, he's a walking candy apple. If you can't he, hit that head. Um, <clears throat> but he's got a big noggin. Um, and yes, he does. It, but he grabs... Uh, Brooke Adams's son and holds him up as a shield that makes the front page of time and that ends his political career. But in the meantime, uh, Martin Sheen's goon Johnny uh, shoots Christopher Walken to death. Mm-hmm. You, you know, shoots him, he falls, and he manages to grab Martin Sheen and see that Martin Sheen's going to end up committing suicide because his career is over. And boom, the movie ends. Uh, bit of a bummer ending, which may have explained why it didn't explode at the box office. Yeah. But that does lead me to a few things. As we've mentioned so many names. We've mentioned Christopher Walken as Johnny. Uh, Brooke Adams as his, you know, love interest, the, the woman he's pining for. You know, Colleen Dewhurst as the serial killer's mom. Tom Skerritt as the sheriff. Martin Sheen as the senator or wannabe senator. Herbert Lom, who most who uh, people will know, movie buffs will know from everything from the horror anthology Asylum from the early 70s, mm-hmm. or they will know him from the Pink Panther movies because yeah. he, he's, he was the one who was he was the tormented boss of Inspector Clouseau in, in the Pink Panther movies under Blake Edwards. You have to say this is a terrific cast. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I love about these kinds of ensembles is. You know, like we said, people weave in and out. I mean, after the uh, the Castle Rock Killer segment, I don't think we see Tom Skerritt again. Right. Um, but it, it is incredible. I mean, they really make the most of their screen time, uh, each one of them. And they have memorable lines, all of them, and memorable st- uh, backstories. And I think a lot of the appreciation comes from if you've read the book, you kind of know there's more to each of these people than we see on screen. Uh, so you know that the pe- the actors have their own backstory in mind, which I think kind of helps. But uh, yeah, just great stuff from everyone. I mean, even Giza Kovacs, who I recognize from Scanners, who's a, a yeah. uh, kind of a bit bit player in Scanners. Uh, but he, he's the goon of of Martin Sheen. But he's got a great look to him. I'm surprised he didn't get more heavy work. Um, but yeah, just everyone in the, in the cast is fantastic. I was a bit concerned on starting the rewatch, uh, because there is, that opening is a little rough for me. There's some absolutely atrocious ADR in the first few scenes between Johnny and Sarah, like, oh man, it's bad. It's some of the worst ADR I've ever heard. And the quality of the dialogue itself isn't much better. It honestly, when Johnny wakes up, uh, from his coma, the chemistry is way better between Johnny and Sarah after they're no longer together. Honestly, I think it's just well, a much more in interesting. fairness, because most of that scene 
most of the most of the time together before he goes into coma is on that roller coaster where we get a little bit of a hint of what's to come because he has a sudden headache. Sure. Which I, I've, uh, I think in the book it suggested that the reason he has this ability is because there's a tumor in his brain. Mm. Uh, which And then after he came out of his coma, uh, his powers were kind of activated, but the tumor is still slowly killing him. Um, that's not really explicitly stated in the movie. But, um, but yeah, that kind of gives a little bit of that science fiction uh, feeling to it. But yeah, I just, the chemistry is not really there between Johnny, Johnny and Sarah before the accident. Uh, so I was a little concerned, but then, like I said, after the coma, there's a really interesting dynamic t- between the two of them. I think the performances get a little bit better from each of them when they're not so straight laced and kind of trying to play younger than they are and kind of love drunk and naive. Right. Um, but I really like the the dynamic between the two of them. I mean, that first scene when he when he's uh, doing his physical therapy and then Sarah comes to visit him and he's learning more about her life. He doesn't know that she has kids until at that point. Um, it's just really heartbreaking and you're really admiring Johnny for his optimism in that moment, but you can just in his eyes kind of see his heartbreak every time she shares a little bit more information yeah. about the last five years that she's been able to experience, but he's lost out on. I mean, that's five years without her five years without his mom that he doesn't get back. It's just really, really tragic. It is a, it is a bummer, but, um, but yeah, you can kind of by the end of the movie, you can understand why he's willing to basically martyr himself because he's slowly dying. Everyone's counting on him for something, but they also all hate him because they don't understand him. Uh, everything that he's held dear in his life is kind of alienated from him. So it is just really tragic. It has that taxi driver feel to it. Um, but uh, just like with Taxi Driver, I think the... But do you think, I mean, I don't know. You keep saying Taxi Driver with Travis yeah. Bickle's character and Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. By the end, I didn't feel that sympathetic for him. I just thought he was crazy. Sure. He is crazy, but he's well-intentioned. He's definitely less uh, sane. Well, in some ways, yes. Some ways, no. It's like, on the one hand, he wants to rescue a child prostitute, and Mm -hmm. that is is, uh, noble. On the other hand, he, he hints that he wants to kill the president, which... Right. So it's, you know, it's, I think he's, yeah. But anyway, he's. And, and we know anyway. that Travis doesn't have psychic abilities to see that the president will blow up. You blow know? up the world. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, but would it surprise you? And I, I'll try to remember to, to go back to the screenplay here in a moment because the screenplay was written by Jeffrey Boehm, mm-hmm. who in the 80s was considered one of the best screenwriters in Hollywood. He wrote Lethal Weapon 2, he wrote Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But he also did a lot of script doctoring. And it's funny you say that you thought the dialogue at the beginning was a little wonky because that's what he's best known for is being brought in as a script doctor to fix dialogue. Yeah. And it improves directly after that. I just think the characters just don't really work as lovers. I think in the beginning, they just don't really have that kind of chemistry. They have more of a chemistry as uh, heartbroken kind of former lovers. I think it's just a more interesting dynamic, but also something that I think the actors latched onto more. And it, like I said, it didn't help that it was ADR and an 83. I mean, ADR, you're not going to get very good results, no matter what. No, I noticed that on my rewatch, uh, today as I got home from church and I put it on while I was eating lunch. And I noticed that there were some wonky, sync issues and and, and so yeah. forth. And I, I don't own this on Blu-ray. I watch this on Amazon Prime and it's streaming on Same. Amazon Prime right now. But um, would it surprise you that Siskel and Ebert gave this film two thumbs up, enthusiastic thumbs up? I it, honestly, you know, I it 
it does and it doesn't because obviously uh they are sometimes known as prudes you know they'll they'll give a, a film thumbs down even if it, they enjoyed it just because you know the principle of it it's it's too violent or it's not trying to say enough but i think uh not having uh heard the reviews i'm just assuming that even they can't deny that uh the violence is in service of the film and that uh it's just a really interesting character study i think that because they liked i think if I remember correctly, they liked stuff uh, like um, uh, Dead Ringers. Yeah, Dead Ringers. I remember them giving a, a good review to that. At least Ebert. Um, so uh, I Both think that- Cisco and Ebert. I listened to the review today. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find it on YouTube. It's just a little four-minute clip. You know, from at the movies or whatever it was called. Then it changed name like three times, but. Gene Siskel opens up and I'm sitting there waiting for Gene Siskel to unload because if I remember correctly, Gene Siskel did not like any of David Cronenberg's movies before this. Hmm. And so, but he says that he never bought the premise and he wasn't a big fan of the screenplay. He said the reason he was giving it thumbs up was because he thought Christopher Walken's performance was so amazing and worthy of an Oscar nomination. Wow. Yep. Okay, I didn't see that coming. Yep. Yeah, this, I mean, this is, as far as Christopher Walken performances go, this is up there. I wouldn't say it's quite to the level of the deer hunter, um, mm-hmm. but it's still, still. I mean, he does kind of carry this movie to a certain extent. Um, and uh, Well, you the- mentioned, I mean, I agree with you that the first few scenes can be a little wonky and they're a little, especially after you get the opening credits with all the still photos that supposedly are from New England, but probably from Ontario or whatever. Right. What's going on with that? And, and it's a very strange opening credit sequence, just slowly introducing the book logo. Yeah, it's odd. But once he once he wakes up and his heart is broken, yeah. I think his performance from there on out is stellar. Yeah. And I love whenever he's ha- receiving a psychic vision and he's grabbing someone's hand, his eyes are like daggers. That's a great, I mean, you really believe it whenever he's having a vision that he's in complete distress. And that scene at the gazebo, you know, that we've referenced, that is just heartbreaking because he is really there in that vision and feels like he let that girl die. I mean, there's, he, it's so real to him in that moment that he believes that he is responsible for her death which is uh, just a terrifying thing. Like a huge burden is just on yeah. his shoulders all the time. Yeah, he keeps imagine. saying over and over again, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything as if he yeah. could have done anything. Yeah, which is, and it's, you know, you could, uh, if you're cold hearted, say, hey, why don't you just say right away, Dodd? You know what I mean? Instead of, because it's Tom Skerritt asking yeah. you. Uh, but I mean, they end up tracking him down anyways. So it's not really, you know, nothing really would have changed. Uh, maybe they could have taken him alive. I don't know, but I think he was. He was it's a plot device to get to the house scene, which is the best scene in the movie, which in is, my opinion. But yeah, I agree. That and the and the final scene are are definitely the the biggest, uh, uh, the most memorable scenes. But I think the whole thing throughout, whenever there's not a big set piece happening, you're really trying to read into Johnny's headspace at the moment. And like I said, when he wakes up from that coma, I mean, most people would be totally shattered by that realization that you know, five years of their life is gone. And he is to a certain extent, but he's doing pretty well, honestly, all things considered, but as just more and more is, is put on his shoulders, he, he gets dragged down more and more. And the, the, the gift, I guess, the, um, the dead zone is, is draining him of all his life force. You can see it. I mean, 
it is kind of funny that uh, the doctor says to him, I can see that you look so, you look so drained. And I'm like, I think he looks better than he did in the opening with those <laughs> well, bangs and the, the dorky <laughs> cardigan. But, you know, I get what he means. His well, eyes hey, are Christopher really Walken, dead. The funny thing about Siskel's review is he goes, Christopher Walken's one of our finest young actors. Christopher Walken was 40 when he did this movie. Right. Uh, he's 80 now. Um, yeah. But to me, he's always looked the same. He's always looked pale and sallow. So, yeah. Um, well, this is seven years after The Deer Hunter. So he had been established, I think, as a exemplary actor for some time. And he's just one of those people that it seems like he's kind of backed into a corner with his roles. But good directors know how to use him well. I mean, like I said, Deer Hunter, this, even Pulp Fiction, good directors know how to use Christopher Walken. And well, and if you've never believable. seen The King of New York, he's great in The King of New York. Mm-hmm. He's got that great scene in True Romance. Yeah. Um, where he's the kind of mafia Don's lawyer, you know, trigger man kind of thing. And then he's, you know, but then he took a turn, you know, in the nineties when he started to do SNL Mm -hmm. and then he started doing comedies. Yeah. And who thought Christopher Walken would be so brilliant at comedies as he is in like Joe Dirt and Wedding Crashers. And so he's fantastic in them. Yeah, he is. And, but this is, this is from a kind of a lost period where Christopher Walken was just a dude. You know what I mean? He wasn't this comic, like kind of car- caricature of a person as we think of him with the, you know, the cowbell and all that. This is him as a real dude, which is kind of strange to see. Um, but uh, but yeah, this is so he had been established for a long time, and that is funny calling him a young actor at this point because you can clearly see the you know the wrinkles on yeah. his, his face. He's not a young man, but um, but yeah, that that gives him kind of the the ability to play both younger and and five years older and kind of as the film goes on age rapidly i think that kind of gives him that ability i always think that's the better way to go about it is to cast an older actor um and just stay with them for as long as we can because when you cast a a young actor to play the younger them there's always some dissonance when they round the corner and then suddenly they're christopher walken you know what i mean there's always well, now a little you bit just of, want now you just want de-age through cgi right is what which you is do? not the way to go in my opinion but you know that's the way that disney would do it that's always you know you watch something like ant-man and then you see uh yeah. you see michael or the new Douglas. indiana jones yeah, which I haven't seen yet, but I've, I've heard there's like 30 minutes at the beginning with the CGI Harrison Ford yeah. running around. It's like, hey, just why? Uh, and and we, I mean, we saw how bad, I mean, the Peter Cushing in Star Wars Rogue One. Wow, that was just, it's, it felt like digging up a grave. You know what I mean? It was just like really, really distasteful, I felt. But, you know, whatever, they'll do what they're going to do. And and if that, I guess if that saves us from seeing those uneven bangs that Christopher Walken has trying to convince us that he's a 25-year-old man in the beginning of the dead zone, I guess that, that does save us from, from the horrors of that. But, you know, whatever. Well, I love Christopher Walken. I think he's... I don't think he got as not much work as he deserved. I think right. that, you know, I, I Annie Hall and the deer hunter, and then he does some stuff, but it's not, none of it really knocks him by socks off and until he gets to the dead zone. And Roger Ebert, actually, I should say he loved the whole movie. Gene Siskel said he just liked, like really liked the movie because of Christopher Walken's performance. Roger Ebert liked the whole movie plus Christopher Walken's performance. I think he's great in it. I love actors who can do something like this and then play like a vicious gangster in King of New York and True Romance. And then 
you know, be the guy who utters one of your um, your maternal grandfather's favorite lines from Joe Dirt, which is, you're talking to my guy all wrong. Yeah. You say that again. I'll put a soldering rod through your eye, you know. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good impression. <laughs> Thank you. It's not great. But anyway, it's <laughs> – but, you know, to make those kind of turns, you know. But it, the funny thing was Christopher Walken never wanted to be a film actor. He wanted to be a dancer and a singer. Yeah, which is often how it goes. You know, you see that with people like Willem Dafoe, too, who you would never expect to be a, a dancer and a singer. But Willem Dafoe started off as a very theatrical kind of kind of guy. So it's, it's really interesting to see where they go. Of course, I'll always think of Christopher Walken also as Max Shrek in, in, uh, oh, in Batman, Batman Returns, Returns yeah. which is what a great name, by the way. You can tell Tim Burton was a, is a real horror fan with that, that character's name. Oh, but, sure. Um, but yeah, so he's... He can both play a kind of a believable person and also this comic character, but I think in this he's 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 really well cast because it is kind of a weird guy. Johnny's a weird guy. Yeah. Um. So you you can't just cast a, a normal dude. You need somebody who's kind of like Christopher Walken, but I think he he kind of uh, does well. And I think Brooke Adams too. I mean, like she's yep. perfect as his as his counterpart. Um, yeah, Brooke Adams who. Horror fans will probably best know from the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake, right, mm -hmm. from 78, which we yep. covered with Butcher Bill Van Vega, which if Way he's listening back. to this, happy uh, Sasquatch hunting up in uh, you know, the right. woods of Canada and avoid the wildfires that you're yeah. sending down here. Um, but yeah, Brooke Adams is is very, very good. Um, I, I was impressed with her. She's another one. I thought, why didn't she get more work? Because I looked over her yeah. filmography imdb and it's at times kind of sparse mm -hmm. to be fair now, she is in days of heaven which is like a right. huge i mean if you're a film student that is that is like a darling movie sure that you pretty pretty much have to see uh, she's the wife of tony shalhoub of monk she is the wife of tony shalhoub and she was in several episodes of monk mm -hmm. um yeah they've been married since 92 i think yeah. so they've been married like 31 years um but no she's she's fantastic in it. And as we've already said, Martin Sheen, I thought it was, I just remember the first time I watched an episode of the West Wing where Martin Sheen plays the good, nice, brilliant president. Yeah. I was like, but he was also Greg Stilson. Who's yeah. Willing to who use you a, are. Uh, willing to use a 10, 10 month old baby as a human shield. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so you're a little uh, dubious of him the entire time you're watching the West Wing. You're at like, first hmm. I was, I'll be honest with you. I was waiting for him to crack. Uh, and we mentioned Tom Skerritt. Another, this is a running theme with me. I hadn't thought about. Tom Skerritt did not get enough work. I mean, you go yep. back. He's in Robert Altman's Mash. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he makes a, a kind of cameo in a Cheech of Cheech and Chong film. Yeah, in yep. the late seventies, as as what was his name, Cherry or something like that. But anyway, and and then you know he's just kind of hit or miss as far as. Film roles, of course, most people know him from Top Gun. Horror right. fans know him from Poltergeist 3, mm -hmm. uh, which is not something to be known for. Right. Um, but <clears throat> but he's really good here. And I, I, I'm with you. I was like, I remember after watching this film, rewatching it a few years ago, when I was going through the 1983 list, I remember thinking, could they only afford Tom Skerritt for like a week? Because I wanted to see more of him. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see him show up at the end. Maybe he's he's an armed 
guard like in like the, there's a police force at the rally at the political rally but he's from castle rock so there's really no reason for him to be there um so yeah i kind of i kind of understand him not being because it is very like we said it's like a vignette but yeah would have loved to to uh see him of course he's in two of our favorites he's in contact yep. um and he's also an alien he's dallas an alien yeah very young tom scarrett so he's in two of our favorites i don't know how you feel about steel magnolias but he's also in that I um, like Steel Magnolias, darn it. I do too. I do too. Yeah. So I'm glad we agree on that. But yeah, and I he, like he his is... character in that. And I I liked him in, yeah, I've liked him in everything he's done. And by the way, you, know, you were born in Ithaca, New York. Tom Skerritt just lived an hour up the road. That's where he lived when you were born. Yeah. We yeah, should have gone been, and say hi. <laughs> I, yes, I have been uh, blessed. Those, those, uh, that time in Ithaca, I met very many celebrities as a baby before I could remember it. <laughs> you did. You did, but... Um, I thank God I don't remember meeting Kid Rock. I think that might have scarred me. But, well, that was in um, Charleston, West Virginia, when you met Kid sure. Rock. So that was well, appropriate that to meet him in West yeah, Virginia. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mountain Mom. Um, yeah. Um, Anthony Zerbe, uh, people will not probably know the name who plays Roger Stewart, the rich guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been in a lot. I mean, you see him, you're like, oh, that guy. I know that guy. Great, he was great in... bit actor. He's one of those. I love those faces that you recognize and you're like, what do I know that guy from? Well, um, Greg, Greg Mortis and Bill Van Vagel and others may remember him from. He was the villain in Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Yes, a classic. He was Milton Crest in the James Bond film License to Kill in 1989. So, mm. And Christopher yeah, Walken was also in a Bond stuff. film. Yep, View to a Kill, mm-hmm. which he, is the worst one of them. Yeah. But yeah, so I've heard. If you want to watch a Bond movie where they talk about equestrianism, horse raising for 15 minutes, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's what James Bond fans want. Oh, yeah. Um, and Roger Moore is looking like he's pushing 95 and he's hanging out with like a 30 year old Tanya Roberts. Yeah. yeah, That's a, that's a weird one. Um, but he's in, you know, Anthony Zerbe, which he's in the life and times of judge Roy Bean, which is a movie I enjoy. It's not a great movie, but I do like it. He's just been in all kinds of stuff. Like I said, kiss meets the Phantom of the park, which is a guilty pleasure for mm-hmm. me. Cause it's really awful. I mean, absolutely awful than when you've got somebody who is clearly, you know, I mean, Ace Fraley and Peter Chris were barely on set. They had stunt doubles, you know, playing them. And it was just, it was, it was laughably bad. And even Paul Stanley has said, so they pitched it to him as, as um, Star Wars meets a hard day's night. And Paul Stanley said, great, let's do it. And he said, after day one driving home, he was like, this is the biggest mistake I have ever made in my entire life. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how to act. I don't know what third grader wrote this script. Yeah. And that's the main problem, I think, the script, because the Beatles can't act either. But A Hard Day's Night is a great film. So it's it's all about. Well, you know, they can't act when like, you know, Hard Day's Night focuses 80 percent on Ringo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, he's got great moments in that movie. Surprisingly, Ringo's, Ringo actually does pretty well. But my, I mean, my favorite moment in that movie is way off topic. I mean, this is like very tangentially related to what we're, well, we're talking, talking about, about. The cast. We're talking yeah. about the cast. But I love the, the part in A Hard Day's Night where George wanders into um, a, a clo- like a fashion test group, like an ad agency. 
And they're asking him what, what he thinks about certain things. He's like, it's rubbish. And they're like, well, what do you know anyways? <laughs> now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that fab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seeing dead in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. Just great stuff. But yeah, I can definitely see that selling selling the, the Kiss guys. But um, yeah, I, I, I find it charming in a way. The Phantom of the Park. It's kind of... And the Scooby-Doo Kiss special. We can't forget about that. They've, they've been involved in quite a few gems. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's all in a day's work. It's all in a hard day's night. Um, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> well... So that's the main cast, though I think the supporting cast is all um, really good. And but this was not a box office success, no. like I said. It it, it costs about like something like seven. The, the, the estimates have been anywhere from seven to ten million. And part of the reason it is estimated is because Dino De Laurentiis bought it, yeah. and Dino De Laurentiis was kind of famous for, oh, let's just say allegedly having offshore bank accounts and moving yeah. some money around. And, yeah. and so we're not really sure, but it only made 20 million. Mm-hmm. And back then, because of advertising, if you spent 10 million, you needed to make 30 million to right. break even. Right. And so now you're looking at a loss of about $10 million. I, I think it probably made its money back in video, I would guess, because it hit video stores in 84 and shortly thereafter, you would start seeing, you know, videos come out for instead of ninety nine ninety nine or eighty nine ninety nine, you'd see them for nineteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine, right. and and so you know I think that that started to happen. Um, so I think it made its money back. But this was David Cronenberg's first real. I'm not sure you'd call it a studio film, even though it was distributed by Paramount. Yeah, because it was a Dino De Laurentiis film. But this was his first time working outside of like low budget Canadian tax based films. Mm-hmm. That may explain the change in tone, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can kind of tell a little bit that this is a four hire thing. It's like how you can tell when you're watching Spartacus that it's a four hire Kubrick movie. It doesn't really feel like his normal thing. Yeah. Uh, like his normal bag. You can see little hints of Kubrick here and there in Spartacus with the scale and everything. You can kind of get hints of 2001 here and there. But for the most part, it just kind of feels like Ben-Hur or any other epic. It has that kind of studio feel to it. The kind of like when the- Dino De Laurentiis hired David Lynch to do Dune in 1984. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, very similar. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. He does that a lot, doesn't he? He just loves yes. to just kind of throw money around and see what sticks. But um, but yeah, so this is, it doesn't really feel like a Cronenberg film. You get hints of it here and there. That Of course, it was shot in Canada I'm sure it's because of the tax breaks, not because Cronenberg was from there, but that kind of worked out right. for him. Um, so it does have that kind of cozy 80s Canadian feel, sort of like the Brooder scanners. Um, but it also kind of has that feel of um, like uh, Salem's Lot. It has that kind of cozy 80s feel to it. So I kind of like that, but it definitely doesn't feel like a, a Cronenberg film for the most part. But um, but Cronenberg's changed a little. I mean, I know that because we horror fans, when we say a Cronenberg film, we automatically think body horror. Right. We think Shivers. We think The Brood. We think Rabid, mm-hmm. Videodrome, Scanners, uh, you know, portions of The Fly and, and stuff like that. That's what we think of. 
Mm-hmm. But you mentioned Dead Ringers, or Dead Ringers is very different from, say, Rabbit and Shivers and Scanners. Sure, although it does climax into a kind of body horror sequence at the end. Yeah. And there's the whole movie is kind of it's kind of a, of abstract body horror concept in that you share your body identically with another person, and what kind of identity crises come with that. Um, so this is not this is sort of touching into the identity crisis sort of thing, like. Uh, what kind of a life is it if you know that everyone you meet, you know exactly how they're going to die, you know everything about them, you know what they're thinking, and right. they just want to use you. And you know that because you can read their mind. You know How, how does that affect your ability to, to have relationships and, and talk to people? Um, it's, kind of like a, and a, it's kind of like a really messed up version of, um, what is it, What Women Want, that Mel Gibson movie. Oh. It's kind of a really messed up version of that. Because I kind like, of like, I like parts of that movie. But anyway, I think I, there are Mel parts Gibson that I think that are. carries that movie, I think. Yeah, because Mel Gibson, you know, say what you want. And yes, when the guy gets drunk, he certainly says some highly yeah. inappropriate I offensive things. I think that's things. an understatement. Uh, his yeah, uh, his uh, beliefs towards certain people groups are not admirable. But isn't it ironic, and I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, I'll, I'll make this quick, but isn't it odd that Mel Gibson's like biggest defenders and still friends after all of that are Danny Glover, Jodie Foster, and Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Jodie Foster, who is gay, Danny Glover has been a very outspoken activist for Black Lives Matters and so forth. Mm-hmm. And Danny Glover is doing Lethal Weapon 5 with Mel Gibson and, yeah. and happy to do it and calls him one of his best friends and all the other kind of stuff. So it's it's odd. But anyway, but Mel Gibson's a good comedic actor mm-hmm. um, with Cronenberg. I think that I, because he was offered other projects that either fell through or whatnot. Like I think Spielberg wanted to work with him at one point. So they obviously saw something there beyond like the macabre and body horror, et cetera. Yeah. They saw a talent, right? Yeah. I mean, the same is true. Like we said of David Lynch with doom, but also star Wars, he was offered star Wars. So um, they, for some reason, and we see this now even with genre directors, if they have what seems to be a good grasp on story and on characters and that like human aspect of film, no matter how niche their movie is, if it's a good movie, they can be picked up by the studio system and kind of thrown into the gears of this, of this uh, hit making machine because they're, they're convinced that since they have a good grasp on a small, a small kind of uh self-contained story that they'll be able to deliver on something as big as like you know we saw it with gareth gareth edwards with like star wars or yeah um or uh now greta gerwig doing barbie and doing and, barbie for goodness sakes yeah which is and she started i mean like house of the devil and all these mumblecore movies and now she's doing barbie and what I, is, I thought she was I, signed on to do something uh, when i first heard it took me like three times on the news to register that Greta Gerwig is doing the Barbie movie. Yeah. It took me a minute. It's almost unbelievable. It's like if David Lynch was doing a G.I. Joe movie. I don't know. It's just... (laughs) Or if Quentin Tarantino was doing a Star Trek movie, which, I mean, someday we might get that. Uh, Now he just said he's not going to do it. He just... But who knows? He could change his mind. But I, I think with Cronenberg, you know, you definitely see... Um, if you go from like, and I haven't seen any of his, like his early short films or student films, or mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of those, 
The first one, I think, chronologically was either Shivers or Rabbit. I can't remember which came yeah, first. Shivers, I think yeah. Was it Shivers? Okay. Mm-hmm. And from Shivers to Dead Zone to Fly to Dead Ringers, I definitely see a trajectory. And then, yes, Naked Lunch is weird. Yeah. Um, Crash is definitely weird. Yeah. And I'm not talking, the listeners, I'm not talking about the 2005 film. No, very different um, films. <clears throat> very I different I saw someone films. recently who ordered the... Uh, the David Cronenberg film and got the case for the David Cronenberg film with the Sandra Bullock disc in it. And it's like, oh, it's not, not the same movie. One of the preachiest movies ever. But anyway, it, yeah. um, not, Gilman, not David Cronenberg's crash. If that was no, preachy, no, no, I don't no, know no, what no, it would no, be. No, no. It would be preaching. No, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, um, or yes, Gilman Joel described the 2005 crash, not the David Cronenberg crash. Yeah. Recently he said, the whole message is racism's bad. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's about it. But Cronenberg. Yes. And then he did was it's, I always pronounce it correct. It's not exists, but it's exists. Existence. Yeah. Existence. Yeah. Okay. But then he does history of violence Mm -hmm. and what was it? Eastern promises. And so he's done some different kind of movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's all over the map. And I think nowadays he's kind of, committing to kind of shadowing his son in a way, going back to those kind of smaller scale, high concept, sci-fi horror films, even though, I mean, for a while he was on the trajectory to make these kind of drama films, kind critically acclaimed drama films with big ideas. But now he's, you know, he's like, Oh, Brandon's doing uh, possessor and um, infinity pool. So then we got, uh, Crimes of the Future spit out, so and which I've come around on a little bit, but st- yeah, I don't think you can argue that it's anywhere near as good as his his work in the eighties and nineties. But, anyways, um, yeah, I, but I, th- I think here I think he does a really good job, and this is the first time he ever had really a budget. I mean, you yeah. can say seven to ten million dollars, but seven to ten million dollars in nineteen eighty three, you know, for a guy who had been doing million dollar movies in Canada. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, thanks to a lot of tax breaks, that's a big jump. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of that went to the cast, securing the cast. I don't know how famous they were at this point, but I feel like getting Martin Sheen and Christopher Walken on your cast alone is kind of an accomplishment. But uh, yeah, you can definitely see it. I mean, without we're all over the place, all a bunch of different locations. We're jumping time. I mean, mm-hmm. people are are changing uh visually as as time goes on we're hopping all around the map so he definitely does i mean and look at that war scene i mean when christopher walken gets the flashback oh, that's a good point to, to i have thought Creek, about budgeting that yeah that would be crazy i mean there's a whole destroyed polish block i mean we get to see all that it's crazy um they had to recreate the blitzkrieg for just that one flash that's i don't know i mean yeah they couldn't have used archival footage from other movies because you can see the the woman putting the sun on the man that is crazy yeah i'm sure a lot of the budget went to that sequence alone now that i think about it or burning down the house that one scene um so yeah man they he really put the budget i love that scene too where early on when he wakes up and I just, you know, I read in the trivia that when you look at Christopher Walken in the bed, which he was in a bed on fire. Yeah. It was a controlled fire, but it was on fire mm-hmm. and it looks like he's sweating, but that's flame retardant. Yeah. Which works. I mean, works perfectly because it works for the reality of the scene, but also, yeah, he could have very well been totally immolated in that scene because 
he yeah his leg is really on fire with the on on the bed which is a crazy thing you would never do that nowadays you would never actually no. put your star in a in a bed that's on fire and have him act um, I mean, the 80s but you know, were really he really a wasn't time. a. We know Christopher Walken as a star, looking back. Yeah. But he didn't really become a star until he became a hit on Saturday Night Live. In right. and of itself, he was always a character actor. Yeah, he was always a supporting guy. Even in the Deer Hunter, which I agree, he's brilliant in the Deer Hunter. But he's not the star of that film. It's Robert De Niro no. and Meryl Streep who are the stars of that film. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The, it's interesting that the same way we think about Anthony Zerby is kind of the same way that Christopher Walken was thought about back yes. then. Yeah. He was seen as a character actor. I mean, he hadn't really done a big lead role. And even after this, he wouldn't do really a big lead role for, you know, for a while. I think the first like serious budget thing i remember him there may be people screaming at the podcast listening to this right now but the first thing i remember him being a lead in after this is communion which is like 1989 mm -hmm. where he's playing whitley striber who was you know it's about his book about you know uh, allegedly that he was abducted by aliens and sure. you know and all that kind of stuff and then you know <clears throat> then he goes does king of new york but then He's really still not doing a leading roles in anything but low budget movies like The Prophecy mm -hmm. and, you know, movies like that, which were almost direct to video movies in the mid 90s. It's when he starts doing Saturday Night Live and um, uh, shoot, what's his name? Um, uh, the head of Saturday Night Live. I can see his face. Lauren, Lauren Michaels, Michaels. Yeah. Lauren Michaels fell in love with him, mm -hmm. said he was the easiest to work with, always great timing hysterical and so he started doing this character who was like i think i can't remember what they called him but he en envisioned himself as like this uh ladies man yeah and he would welcome women into his apartment and and he'd had a thin mustache and a smoking jacket and a bit of a french accent and then he'd offer him like cheap wine and show him his new paintings from target mm -hmm. and stuff like that and he started doing those and that's when he kind of blew up and that's when he yeah. started showing up in like music videos yeah and you know and all that kind of stuff and then he becomes a kind of a pop icon but he really that didn't happen for him until he was in his 50s yeah which is crazy i mean i feel like there are a lot of people like that i feel like jeff goldblum was like that to a certain degree to a degree yeah. recently people have kind of accepted him as this kind of quirky uh icon but but yeah it's crazy you look back and you see these guys putting in uh really putting in the work at the beginning of their career they had to work at it yeah um and yeah, jeff uh, goldblum first first movie i remember seeing jeff goldblum in was death wish 1971 right. 50 yeah. One years ago, 52 yeah. years ago. Crazy. You know, and now he's on every other commercial going, uh, uh yes, 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 yes. You yeah. know, right? He's, <laughs> Buy a Capital and, One card. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apartments.com. Um, yeah. Hey, but so, there's a there's another connection to Body Snatchers. I mean, he was in the yes, Body Snatchers. He and remake. Brooke Adams were in Body Snatchers, Invasion mm -hmm. of the Body Snatchers together. But yeah, this cast just has an amazing, but they're mainly all character actors. Herbert Loam, character actor. Tom Skerritt, character actor. Colleen Dewhurst, character actor. You know, Brooke Adams, character actor. They, none of them ever had lead roles, but I think it's impressive that whether it was Cronenberg or whether it was Dino De Laurentiis, I know De Laurentiis had a reputation for really interfering with casting yeah oh yeah um he was the guy that got you know, arnold in total recall yeah well de Laurentiis 
Did you know he didn't talk to Arnold for like a year? He got so mm-hmm. mad at him. So John Milius and Oliver Stone pitched Conan the Barbarian to Dino De Laurentiis in like 1979 or 1980. Mm-hmm. And they said, we want Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's the only person who can do it. And De Laurentiis was like, he's not an actor. He's a bodybuilder. And they're like, no, he's done some acting. He's done some TV shows here and there. But his accent, physique, everything, it's perfect for Conan. Mm-hmm. It may not be great for anything else, but it's perfect for Conan. Right. So Arnold Schwarzenegger walks in. At this point, Arnold Schwarzenegger is already a multimillionaire, so he's not intimidated by anybody. Mm-hmm. He's already made millions, especially in commercial real estate in L.A. He walks in to meet De Laurentiis. Dino De Laurentiis was like five foot four and famously had like a 15-foot desk. Yeah. And Schwarzenegger looks down, looks over at John Milius and goes, why does such a little man need such a big desk? <laughs> And Dino De Laurentiis said, I will never work in this town again, you know. <laughs> so he was kind of famous for doing that. But somehow Cronenberg or one of the producers talked him into doing this $10 million Stephen King movie with a cast of supporting actors, of character actors. He agreed to it. And I think we're better off for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because who else could you see playing Johnny as well as Christopher Walken in this? Can you imagine recasting that? I can't. Yeah. If this was, yeah. No. uh, It would have to be somebody equally weird in a different way, I think. Someone who's who's like kind of strange in their own kind of way other than Christopher Walken. I don't know. Yeah. You can't just have a regular guy because Christopher, I mean, it's the thing with Johnny is he's kind of. You understand why he's kind of a little bit of an outcast because he is a kind of a weird dude, you know, even before uh, his accident. I mean, he's this uh, school teacher who likes to, you know, assign these creepy, like, gothic horror shorts to his kids. He's wearing a cardigan. He's got the Edgar geriatric. Edgar Poe and, and, yeah. yeah. Which is such a funny, yeah. it is funny that we're introduced to him. He's reciting Poe and then he's like, and read Sleepy Hollow. It's like, they're all over the place in that, that section. But. Well, it's funny that both in Poe and in, and in Legend of Sleepy Hollow, that the protagonist, the protagonist in Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a school teacher yeah. and has a crush on on a woman in town and doesn't get her. And, and then, you know, in Edgar Allan Poe's own life, he was heartbroken and and so forth. So I think there was, that was on purpose. Do you remember who produced this? I just remembered who produced this. Mm -mm. I mean, it was Dino's, you know, company, but the late great Deborah Hill. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I remember that, which is, Insane that this early on, I mean, this is directly after the fog, and yeah, John Carpenter this is, is not attached like to like a all. year after Halloween 2 and Halloween yeah. 3. Yeah, yeah, so good for her for you know securing this one and getting this she one was made. a trailblazer, mm-hmm. absolutely. She was a trailblazer, so yeah, good on her. Wanted to make sure, and also the music. Did you notice who did the music, and what did you think of the music? Well, the music, first of all, was fantastic. His name is My- Michael Kamen. Kamen. Yep. who I know did a bunch of stuff in the 90s and 2000s, but this was like an early score for him, right? This yes. Was, this was, he did um, most of the Lethal Weapon movies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that seems he, right. Michael Kamen, I'll, I'll look it up, but he did a lot of, yeah, he did a lot of stuff. He he became very, very um, prolific. But mm. He did Brazil, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. He did Life Force. Uh, he did Highlander. Oh, he did weapon, Highlander, like you that's said. right. Yeah. Adventures in yeah. Babysitting, which is a favorite of mine. Die Hard, he did Die Hard. 
Did die Man. hard. Yeah. He really took off after the Dead Zone because before this he scored The Wall. He did the orchestral stuff for Pink Floyd's The Wall. He did, he did Roadhouse. He did Roadhouse, yes. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's all over the place. He's got range. Last Boy Scout, man. man. Last Boy Scout, that's a fun movie. It's stupid, but it's a fun movie. He did the uh, HBO Tales from the Crypt score. There you go. Man. Yeah, unfortunately died young. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That sucks. I hate that. Did Event Horizon as far as horror movies. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. How did he die? I've got to look at Heart attack, it looks like. Died from a heart attack, but he had MS as well. Mm. He was only 55. Yeah. I'm Real 51. Shame. That's scary. But look at what look else? how prolific that filmography yeah, oh is. Oh my in such gosh! A short yeah, time. yeah, the guy guy stayed busy. Yes, um, he did absolutely, that's... and turned out quality work. I mean, this is not quantity over quality. I mean, this is all great stuff. Yeah. So, what else do you want to say about the Dead Zone? What notes do you have about the Dead Zone that we haven't covered already? Few things. Well, First of all, kind of a funny thing I noticed. I wrote this down in my notes. When Johnny wakes up from his five year coma. Uh, he is not attached to any life support. Right. Uh, no respirator, not even an IV, just nice, cozy cotton sheets. So I guess he was just literally sleeping for five years. He was too comfortable to get in up. In a hospital that just looked like a house. Right. Plus his, parents, plus his parents are already there when he wakes up. He's like, right. your parents are here to see you. What did they do? Did they inject him with that Parkinson's medication that makes coma patients He, wake he up? must have had like brief awakenings leading sure. up to that, right? That it I had guess to be. so. Because otherwise it's like, and your parents are here and uh, you're not hooked up to anything. And yeah, it's just, it's very strange. It's kind of an odd, kind of an odd thing. My theory is just that he was too comfortable in that little cottage house. He was too comfortable to, to get up. It looked comfy. It did look comfy. <laughs> yeah. So. I would love that, you know, just stay in that, that nice country house. Mm. You get a nurse to dab your forehead. You give me a TV and I'm good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Perfect. So, uh, there's that, there's, I wrote down that Johnny already dressed like an old man before the accident. So he's got That's a head true. start on that geriatric That's fashion. very true. Yeah. Lost five years, but it doesn't really matter because he already acted like he was, he was a 50 year old man. Um, and then another part from when, uh, he's in the hospital, he's got a weirdly poetic mom. Did you notice that? She's like, he asks about Sarah and she's like, cast her from your thoughts, Johnny. She cleaves onto another man now, a husband. <laughs> It's like I guess I guess it makes sense that Johnny became an English teacher because he's got like a Victorian like Shakespearean mom. Yeah, she was kind of weird. She was kind of um, that weird. whole very thing dramatic. was kind of weird. And yes, he's just got a normal dramatic. dad, but she's like a like huge drama queen, very theatrical. She was really hamming it up. I think she she didn't really know quite what movie she was in, but uh, I mean, obviously Cronenberg liked her delivery, so he kept it, but. Yeah, I'm glad that she didn't. Uh, she didn't live long enough to see the the scene with the uh, the serial killer because she would have just she would have had thirty heart attacks when she saw that. Yeah. If that's how she reacted yeah. to somebody touching her son's hand on TV. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing I have is that Denny uh, Sarah's uh, son is played by two non-related babies. I saw in the cast. It's what? Not, not twins. It's just two different babies. So I guess I couldn't find any twins in Toronto the week they filmed. That is odd. Very funny. You don't often see that. Just two very. I'm, I want to go back and look to see if they just have different faces because it's yeah, two different babies play Denny uh, in the movie. But uh, yeah, you don't see that often. Um, oh, here's something I wanted to talk to you about. 
the alternate ending. There was a scripted alternate ending. Do you know about this? Oh, no, I don't. Uh, it kind of deviates from the book. Johnny survives being shot in the alternate ending, uh, which wasn't filmed, but it was scripted. And he slips back into a coma at the hospital. He tells he there's like a little bit of time passes. He survives the shooting. Uh, he warns uh, Sarah about something that's going to happen to her and she avoids it and then he slips back into a coma. So it's almost like it's an interesting framing device, I guess, him like waking up from a coma and then slipping back into a coma once his job is done. Although right. I guess you could you could probably just argue that him dying at the end, conclusively dying at the end of the movie was more appropriate, like uh, Final Destination, like death had reclaimed him when he was done with his task. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing, him slipping back into a coma. That would have been kind of interesting. Um, but uh, and it would it would have been even more of a downer originally when he's shot and dying. Uh, um, Sarah doesn't even say "I love you" at the end. She just kind of cries and he dies. Uh, they they ADR'd in "I love you" to make it a little bit less uh, uh, sad at the end. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, overall. Uh, I would say The Dead Zone, definitely more King than Cronenberg, and it's not really exceptional in either of their bodies of work. It's a great film, but as far as their work goes, I wouldn't say it's uh, it, it blows me away. As you put it, it doesn't blow up my skirt, whatever zapped thing you said. It was kind yeah, of- well, I would, I would, you know what, I, I think it is better than, and I know this is horror, you know, heresy to some people. Uh-oh. I think it is better than his earlier work. Than Cronenberg's. Yeah, and Cronenberg's. I think The Dead Zone is a better film than Shivers and Rabbit, The Brood, Videodrome, Scanners. I like all those movies, hmm. but I think this is a much better movie. Do I think it's as good as The Fly or Dead Ringers or History of Violence? No, but I think it's darn solid. Yeah, um, I th- I think it's better than Rabbit and Shivers. I don't think it's better than Scanners the Brood. Definitely not Videodrome. Um, but uh, but yeah, I do think it's a solid adaptation. And I mean, Stephen King books can be really hit or miss as far as adaptations go. So yes. um, as far as I know, everyone's happy with this one. Cronenberg's happy with it. King's happy with it. Um, and uh, it's it's not a Christine situation where for some reason, even though how great that film is, you know, um, John Carpenter likes to put that one down, and uh, even though it seems like King kind of approved of it, but that's not the case with this one. It seems like everyone involved is proud of it, so I'm happy about that. Um, if you're ready to get into to ratings, uh, let's do it. I I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten. Okay. Um, I I really like it. I think partly I like it because of how disjointed and, and rhapsodic it is, how it kind of moves from vignette to vignette and has those tonal shifts which keep you invested. Uh, I do think it has its fair share of technical issues. It's a very 1983 film. Like I said, the ADR um, is a little rough at times. It kind of does have that brown, washed out kind of look to it that a lot of Cronenberg's early stuff did. I think they've the Shout Factory may have cleaned that up for the Blu-ray, but... Mm-hmm. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. But yeah, seven out of ten, and I do think it's uh, it's a, a solid thing. I would honestly, the more I'm thinking about it, put it near uh, the bottom half of my Cronenberg full filmography ranking. Which, by the way, I've got a very very long video in the works. It's already kind of growing out of hand. 
uh, where I rank the entire Cronenberg family to, uh, filmography, not just uh, David Cronenberg, but also Brandon. But um, but yeah, I think I would put it uh, in the bottom half, but it's it's not the worst. It's not the best. It's a solid adaptation with great performances and, and really great scenes sprinkled throughout. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm a little bit higher than you, but that's a seven out of 10 for people who listen to this podcast. So that's a high rating for you. So sure. I, it's an eight out of 10 for me. Um, it made my yeah. top 10 of 1983, the year of King, Christine and Cujo that same year. Um, but it, it's, <clears throat> I wouldn't rank it as high as Christine or Cujo, but I do really like it. Again, I think Walken's performance is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the supporting cast is really good. I, I think that when we get to the Castle Rock killer, I mean, I, I could have seen an entire movie just with Tom Skerritt and Christopher Walken chasing sure. the Castle Rock killer. Yeah, absolutely. It's an eight out of 10 for me. It's a buy. I don't own it right now, but uh, uh, one of these days when I get the IRS off my butt, I will. <laughs> yeah, that's what you need to tell him. Call him up. Mr. Taxman, please. I got to exactly. buy the Dead Zone on Blu-ray. Get off exactly. my back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they're fighting me on a couple of deductions. But anyway, um, and <clears throat> and if anybody out there works for the IRS, please call me because their helpline is unhelpful. Yeah. Um, now I see why George Harrison is is one of your favorite Beatles. Exactly. Um, exactly. Well, now you know why John Lennon, of all people, moved to New York City because he yeah. avoid English taxes. There you um, go. So uh, that is The Dead Zone. And... Where can they find you online, buddy? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Kane underscore underscore hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore hero 12. Um, uh, yeah, I, you can find my letterbox and YouTube from there. If you're interested in more Cronenberg stuff from us, I've, there's like over an hour of Cronenberg videos on the Patreon. Like I said, very long Cronenberg family filmography video in the near future. And then we'll also be recording a bonus pod soon. Um, and there's like 20 hours of those up uh, already on the on the Patreon. So you can check those out. And yep. um, Just go to Patreon and look for Father and Son Watch Horror, and you can sign up there for as little as $2.50 a month. You get to suggest uh, topics, and you can even be on the show, and you get to vote in our different polls, see our bonus video, Jackson's bonus videos, listen to our bonus episodes, and you get to vote in the Horror Oscars at yeah. the end of the year. So, and also, they can find you over at, occasionally on, Horror Movie Podcast. That's uh, the right. The new Horror Movie Podcast. At HorrorMoviePodcast.net. That's the brand new site for relaunching HMP. So, you catch Jackson and I on there occasionally with uh, Nathan Bartaball and Victor Rodriguez and Trey Whetstone. We have a new episode coming out that's being edited now on Slashers. So that thing will end up probably being around three hours long with only yeah. a couple segments. So it's a beast. Uh, yeah, that one's going to be a beast. And so mm -hmm. you can check that one out soon. And so probably about the same time around the time that this drops, that will be out. And so you can check out both. And so you can find me also at Pastor Matt R at Letterboxd and on Twitter. And be sure to check out uh, Father and Son and horror movie podcast on twitter as well as well as father and son has a closed facebook group just drop me a message to let me know you're interested we don't have 
a huge ton of people on that Facebook group. We've got about, you know, we've got over a hundred, but we've kept it kind of small. It's a closed group. I don't want to, I love what Land of the Creeps has done, but I don't really want to deal with that much spam and that many people getting out of line and having to ban that many people. So I've really only let people in that we kind of know. Mm -hmm. And, um, so let me know, you know, that you want in. And as long as you're not selling Ray-Ban sunglasses or, <laughs> you know, whatever you're doing, um, then if you just want to go and talk horror and be respectful, then you're welcome on. And uh, so you can check out us there. So, who you've got a busy schedule coming up. I've got a busy schedule coming up. Right. But hopefully we'll be able to record a bonus episode soon and then. And then uh, another episode or two before you head back to college. And uh, and there's more horror movie podcasts coming. So all kinds of stuff out there. Just stay tuned. So that being said, anything else to say to the good people, Jackson? I have to say goodbye. And remember, no matter who you vote for next year, your candidate of choice would, without hesitation, use a baby as a meat shield. <laughs> Doesn't matter who, they would. And you know they would, too. I'm not sure that Joe Biden and Donald Trump at their age can move that quickly That's as Martin true. Sheen did. That's true. They wouldn't I'm, be able to lift them. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen so. Trump's uh, golf drive, too. It's a little shaky these days. So, yeah, he might need to he might need to start lifting weights to get that baby. baby yeah, up the air fast both enough. of them are both of them are getting up there. They're just yeah. I'm just saying they're both. I'm being bipartisan here. They're both getting up there. Could they um, could they even launch nukes at this point? I'm not sure. I don't think they would have the uh, the physical would, would their staff give either one of them the codes? Probably I not. I don't think so. <laughs> They'd probably just give them like a, a cell phone number in Topeka, Kansas or something. Launch the nukes. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Would you like that with pepperoni? Or? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. Oh. So until next time, we thank you for listening. And remember that the family that watches horror together slays together. See ya. Once again, I want to thank our Patreon supporters, Trey Whetstone, Stefan Sitter, Amy Swan, Ryan Bratton, Greg and Pearl Morgan, Nick Stumpf, Kevin Corpy, Kate Lamp, Joel Robertson, Ian West, Ian Urza, Greg Russell, Greg Bench, Dave Becker, Dan George, Carl Davis, Brian Scott, Billy D, Ashley Pinkard, and Andred. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. You're the best. Like I've said before, you make this podcast possible. serendipitous opportunity do I owe the pleasure of having such a wonderful woman on my doorstep. Oh, you got my flyer. <laughs> I made them myself at Kinko's. I put them all over this building hoping to find someone. So it is you. <laughs>